0: Welcome to Doing the Work, the Frontline Stories of Social Change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Don Belkin Martinez, who is the Associate Dean for Equity and Inclusion and a clinical professor at Boston University. School of Social Work. Dr. Martinez explains the Liberation Health Model, which she co created, as an approach that utilizes a sociopolitical framework for assessment of what is causing problems for people and intervention techniques to help them live better. She shares the incredibly interesting history of the model, which started in a hospital inpatient psych unit in collaboration with patients and their families. You need to hear the story directly from her. But the model is rooted in a mix of transformative liberatory approaches Brazilian mental health practitioners were using at the time, as well as radical counseling and social work, black feminism, and Marxist theory that Dr. Martinez, Nelson Ochoa, and colleagues studied together. Dr. Martinez breaks down how to use the model, explaining the assessment process using what is called the liberation health triangle, and the intervention tools and techniques. Such as deconstructing dominant worldview messages and rescuing the historical memory of change. She shares examples and stories from her own experience applying the model. In addition to the socio political analysis, assessment, and intervention techniques, I love how the model encourages practitioners to engage with clients in ways that feel much more authentic, the transformative approach of action for change once clients feel ready and how it is deeply rooted in collective liberation. Additionally, it is flexible enough to incorporate various approaches within the model, as long as they are connected to the larger approach. Dr. Martinez and I get into all of this, as well as how to learn more and get involved. I hope this conversation inspires you to action. Before we get into the interview, I want to let you all know about our episode's sponsor, the University of Houston Graduate College of Social Work. First off, I want to thank them for sponsoring the podcast. UH has a phenomenal social work program that offers face-to-face master's and doctorate degrees, as well as an online and hybrid MSW. They offer one of the country's only political social work programs and an abolitionist-focused learning opportunity. Located in the heart of Houston the program is guided by their bold vision to achieve racial, social, economic, and political justice local to global. In the classroom and through research, they are committed to challenging systems and reimagining ways to achieve justice and liberation. Go to www.uh.edu forward slash to learn more. And now the interview. Hey, Dawn, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm a big fan of the work you're doing, and I'm just really glad that we're finally getting to connect and get you on here.
1: Thank you so much, Mon. And I just want to say the same. I have been following your work for a long time. We we share a lot of your podcasts here at the School of Social Work at BU, and um, I'm hoping to continue our work together.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, and I'm using liberation health uh, stuff in the work that I do. Um, with my co-instructor, Charlotte Yearwood. So I, I, I'm really excited to have you on here and get into this liberation health model. I think it's really revolutionary and can like just help people in our field and related fields, you know, really need this. So let's just jump right in with what is the liberation health model?
1: So the liberation health model is a sociopolitical form of, um, it was developed for social work, for social work practice. But of course, it could be used by anyone in you know, public health or community organizing or um, any of the other mental health professions. Um, but what it is, is um, a model of practice that involves both a sociopolitical assessment of what's going on With the person. So I'm trained as a clinical social worker. So people come to see me. You know, I have a small practice. Um, Usually something's going on in their life. It's not, you know, going well. They want some help, they want some therapy. Um, And it's a this liberation health framework is a socio political assessment frame which assesses the personal and the ideological, cultural factors and the institutional factors influencing their life and influencing their problem and the relationship with the problem. And then I think most importantly, it's a method. It's a direct method of practice, interventions that are very specific around socio political types of techniques and interventions that an individual can become involved with, with their family, with their community, with the larger, you know, sort of place that they're living.
0: Yeah. So let's I know we're going to get into like a lot of how it functions and how to use it um, as best we can, obviously, like on a podcast episode, because um, it could be its own series, really, um, breaking it down, right? But let's talk about how it was created because you've let me know that it's an interesting story, the way this came about.
1: Yes, it is a very interesting story because it was created the Liberation Health. Um, framework and method was created sort of alongside of the people that are the most directly impacted by um, mental health issues. And I can tell you the story. Um, it's, a, it's kind of a cool story because I was working before I started, you know, working in academia, I was a family therapist. I'm trained as a family therapist. And I worked in a very large hospital at, um, in Boston And I was the chief social worker on the um, inpatient psychiatry unit, and sort of responsible for sort of you know supervising and providing family therapy. And one of the things this hospital um, frequently did, which is you know pretty typical of most big large teaching hospitals, was to, um, to to administer consumer satisfaction surveys. Uh, for patients and their families. And in the case of ours, it was mostly the family that was filling out the consumer satisfaction survey, because many of the um, the patients were younger. And um, then the hospital would sort of compare and contrast each department um, in how satisfied the patients were. And What happened where I worked was that we actually scored very low (laughs) in the sort of consumer satisfaction survey. And parents were, um, remember, this is on the inpatient psychiatry unit. So that comes with a lot of, you know, dominant worldview messages of what parents are doing or not doing. Mm -hmm. So parents reported in in the consumer satisfaction survey that they felt judged, that they felt um, people didn't really think they were good parents, that they didn't work with them that they uh, made mistakes and um, were uh, not eager to sort of continue follow-up um, based on their experience. And my department took that really seriously, took the sort of um, this feedback seriously. And at the time, it's really interesting because at the time the medical director of the department was a white, cisgendered, older psychiatrist. Um, he certainly wasn't involved in any kind of alternative movement, um, uh, around mental health. Uh, and he's trained as an analyst, but he was very concerned that the, the families were not happy. And he said to me, you know, um, do you have any ideas <laughs> about, you know, what, what we can do and, um, what sorts of um, interventions we could make here on our inpatient psychiatry unit. And at that time, I just gotten back from Brazil um, and trained at the sort of with people from the Paulo Freire Institute and were doing a lot of organizing and alternative mental health response in Porto Alegre, Brazil, um, and had an amazing experience there. And I was already looking for something because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm. I was an activist way before I was a social worker. (laughs) So I was already looking for something to add to the psychodynamic training that I received, you know, because I felt like it was important, but it also left out a lot of um, really crucial factors in how people um, relate to the world and how they see themselves and how the world relates to them. So kind of uh, following the um, trip to Brazil, I talked with a really good friend of mine who was in the same graduate program, um, Nelson Ochoa, and I said, "You know what? Like, I, I'm thinking like we could do something that uh, that uh, is similar to what they're doing in Brazil, um, and you know, look at different systems and theories and conceptual frameworks, and think about how we can apply them here to our practice here in you know the Boston area. Because, of course, you know, Porto Alegre is a very different context." Than, um, than Boston, so we got together with. At that point, it was just a few social workers, so maybe three or four of us, and we started sort of doing a lot of reading together, um, looking at conceptual frameworks. We spent a lot of time reading the work of Antonio Gramsci, Paulo Freire, Ignacio martin barro our own radical rank-and-file social worker, Bertha Caven Reynolds. Um, the Combahee River Collective, you know, um, Black feminist movements. And we sort of put together a model that um, that we thought would address the sort of holistic picture of what people are experiencing. Um, and then I think the cool part of the story is that because I was working on this <laughs> inpatient psychiatry unit, we tested out the model with the families that were, that were, interacting with the staff and um, experiencing, you know, having their children hospitalized and the families were our best teachers because we went through about five or six different tools to, um, to develop, but our assessment tool, right. You know, because the families would say, Oh, this is too complicated. Or like, I'm not going to fill out all these boxes or, you know, the Bronenfeller model makes sense, but like, I'm not going to, you know, (laughs) I'm not going to do all that. So we came up with this assessment tool, which we call the triangle, the tri- our triangle of analysis that we use with everybody. And then again, with the people most directly affected, um, the families that were had their loved ones on the unit, we developed the interventions, which um, were around deconstructing sort of dominant worldview messages, introducing new information, you know, rescuing historical memory of change, which I can all sort of I can talk about in a little bit. But that was, I think, I think. In my opinion, that's the coolest thing about the model is I like to say that uh, it wasn't developed in a lab. It wasn't developed um, in somebody's head. It was developed with um, the community at the front and center.
0: Yeah, it's incredible because it was like all these things had to come together at the right time, right? Like you were in that position. The surveys had been bad. Like if the surveys weren't bad, this baby <laughs> never would have come to be, right? Um and then you have to have leadership that wants mm-hmm. change and is invested and lets you do something because this, especially in an inpatient psych, I mean, this is like way out there in a right. Mm-hmm. I mean, to do to bring in socio political, right? Instead of just the problem residing, right? They Absolutely. just need me- they just need medication, right? You mm-hmm. know, I mean
1: Yeah. And I remember it was really funny because we started using it, and surprise, surprise. The consumer satisfaction scores went right up. <laughs> People were very happy, and um, the, our medical director was interviewed on um, some radio program. And you know, they were sort of getting into the theory and talking about Antonio Gramsci, who's you know was a Marxist, right? And so he said, "I'll never forget." He said something to the effect of, "Well, you know, I I, don't, I can't say I really." understand that much about the theory, but I do know that the families are really happy <laughs> and you know we're getting our scores are really high so I'm very happy to you know to introduce this model on our on our um, service
0: yeah it's really it's really interesting it's a great story thank you for sharing that so you you know as you share the story you kind of got into some of this but I just want to ask like other ways this model is the liberation health model is different? from the medical model or just other kind of like problem folk, right? So much of like how we're trained in cl- as clinicians. And I think beyond just clinical too, for social work is we get trained to see problems, right? And, but often the prop where the problem resides then is often what's up for debate, I guess, mm-hmm. in a way. So just kind of how, I mean, you, you talked about a little bit that it's, you know, sociopolitical and, you've got this triangle, but maybe you can get, start getting into a little bit more of like what that looks like.
1: Sure. So we usually start with, it's a very specific method that we use. you know, it's an assessment intervention method that, um, that involves people identifying, uh, first, right. What's getting in the way of their optimal level of functioning, right. You know, what's getting in the way of them living the life they want to live. Right. And, um, for me, as a family therapist, that could take a long time to flesh out because if you've got five people in the room, and everybody thinks it's something else, and often people, because of our individualistic culture, and in you know here, will blame other people. It's my mother, or it's my brother, yeah. or it's you know my sister. So the. Liberation Health Social Worker first works to flesh out an externalized vision of the problem, something that's not located in a person. So it's, you know, it could be something like depression or communication problems. You know, we work with people to sort of externalize what, what it is that's getting in the way of them living in their, their preferred life. And, um, that's really the first step. And once we do that, uh, we start with our problem analysis. It's probably my favorite part of the assessment process, which is the liberation health triangle. And in that, we actually have a triangle that um, that we do with people and um, that we complete with people. And um, whether it's on Zoom or in person, it involves putting the identified problem in the middle of the triangle. So let's suppose you've been working with a, do- a father and a daughter and you know the initial sort of, understanding of the problem is, my dad's a jerk, or (laughs) uh, my daughter doesn't listen, we will have worked with you to sort of externalize what it is that's going on, it's getting in the way of, you know, you and your daughter doing well. And that might be communication, right? That might be communication. So that's what's if we identify communication, that goes in the middle of the triangle. And then the first part of that is an identifying the personal factors that influence the problem that's pretty easy for people to do because I think that's the medical model right so if there's any history of loss or any history of trauma or any kind of medical illness or psychiatric illness or um, conflict or you know all of those sort of things typical medical model that goes on the p part of the triangle the second part of the triangle is much more challenging for people because they're, a lot of times they're not used to thinking this way. So we'll talk about dominant worldview messages. Um, we use the word culture, which we're probably going to change in the next edition of the book, because culture for us is not the food you eat or what you wear. It's the what Antonio Gramsci talked about, the dominant worldview messages that we um, are exposed to that influence how we think about things. So we might ask questions about gender and how the, you know, the kinds of messages we get about how cisgendered men are influenced to communicate. Um, or we might ask questions about individualism, right? That's sort of like the sort of dominant worldview message that if you have a problem, you're supposed to take care of it on your own. Or we might ask questions about, uh, you know, race. Right. Racism and how racism has impacted um, your understanding of communication, what you've experienced in your school, things like that. So all of these like what I would say ism, sexism, racism, classism, individualism, professionalism, all of those kinds of um, questions are sort of part of the analysis of the sort of cultural piece on the triangle. And then finally, the institutional factors. And when we think about institutions, we think about, you know, buildings, right? Systems, right? You know, so the housing system, right? The capitalism, it's like there's no living wage under capitalism, you know, the education system, the healthcare system, uh, the, the uh, justice, quote unquote, justice system, and all of those different factors, right, are what influence your experience of the problem. That is very different than the medical model, which probably for the most part only focuses on the personal factors influencing the problem. And then um, what I would say, even with the sort of ecological frame that social work has, right, it's a conceptual framework, and it doesn't go beyond like that, right? Oftentimes, it's just about understanding the sort of ecological factors, but it's not around intervening around these ecological factors. And this is a very big piece of liberation health, the intervention around these cultural and institutional factors. So, what we like to say in individual, um, in liberation health, sort of borrowing from Paulo Freire and um, Augusto Boal, is that, you know, our method of practice addresses the cop in the street, right? The external factors and the cop in your head, the mm-hmm. cop in your head that has internalized all of those oppressive messages.
0: Yeah, I love it because, you know, we've talked about this, but I also got into social work as through like activism. And I think some of it got trained out of me, you know, Mm -hmm. as I was like trained. Um, I'm, I'm actually not like opposed to CBT. I think there's aspects of CBT that when it goes deep enough and really looks at like what you're talking about, about these larger dominant cultural message, right? Cause if someone has a core belief, it's like, well, what helped, what formed that? Right. So if it gets connected to those bigger, like there's some overlap with that part, but the part about the institutions, right. And the, and then like, I'm very interested to hear what you have to say about interventions. Um, because, Even with like a lot of these counseling frameworks, for lack of a better term, it's always still like, well, what, but I can only control me, you know, it's kind of like I can only, which in some ways is true in a way, but we know when we unite with other people, we can create change, right? So I'm really like, let's go into that um, with the interventions. Like, how do you approach that?
1: Yeah, so that's great. So again, that's a really big difference between the liberation health method and sort of more traditional ecological frames it's very focused on the doing, addressing the cop in the street and the cop in your head. So we identify um, four different sort of categories of interventions that we engage with. And the first one is like just identifying the dominant worldview message, right? You know, like if you sort of, you know, think this is, I don't know, if dad, let's take this dad, and he was behaving in a certain way. And um, those sort of behaviors were very much based on dominant worldview messages around gender and how men are supposed to communicate and men are supposed to behave. The first step is really understanding that, right? You know, sort of like, you know, getting this, what is the dominant worldview message about men and how they're supposed to behave and how they're supposed to communicate? And how do you think that that's affected you, Right. So that's the first step. It's like identifying the dominant worldview message. The second step is deconstructing that message, like, you know, deconstructing it, taking it apart. And uh, that can be really hard when people have believed something for 40 years or 50 years. Like, I'm just supposed to behave this way as a man. I'm supposed to, that's what men do. They man up, you know, so on and so forth. So that deconstruction is um, sometimes quite, um, tedious because <laughs> you kind of have to slog through it and sort of pull out different threads of what people say and and sort of help to sort of see, you know, this is who benefits when you think this way. So when you think that men are not supposed to share their feelings, because if you do, you're kind of like not, you know, being a guy who benefits from that, who loses, who gains, right? So that deconstruction is a really important piece of things. And then finally, the third step is introducing new information, right? There's lots of ways that men can behave. There's lots of ways that men can communicate. One of the cool things about, right, social media is that you don't have to work very hard to <laughs> find people doing these kind of like um, introducing new information interventions and you just go on the, um, the web together and you say, wow, here's this dad's group that's doing all this. This is amazing. You know, they sort of rejected you know, the um, idea that men have to be silent and not communicate and not be, you know, sort of talk about their feelings. And then finally, the last step, um, and it's not sequential. I'm just talking about them as four steps is activism as a therapeutic intervention, acting in the world. And we believe that we need to change. It's not enough to change the cop in your head. We need to change the material conditions in the world. Right. And so that means getting involved in organizing that, and that there's been a number of studies, right, that indicate activism and organizing is a, actually a therapeutic Um, intervention, because you're working in a collective, you know, you're working with other people that feel the same way you do, you're gaining skills, you know, you're getting confidence in your worldview, all these sorts of things. So that's a big piece of it. And so as liberation health practitioners, that is a large component of what we do, we're involved in the world around union organizing around housing justice around creating this alternative um, mental health crisis response model in Boston. So That's just as much of what we do as the sort of cop in the head stuff.
0: And are the folks that you're working with, you know, clients, participants, I mean, I know there's different terms, people, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, are they in, they're involved in, like, if let's say you're going to do some housing justice work and housing organizing, because obviously, that's going to be an issue that's like really stressing people out, right? Like mm-hmm. um, I mean, that's enough to like cause a whole host of problems, right? Housing. Um, are you then showing up together at of like at different uh organizing activities?
1: Yes, we do. We, we have a very strong presence. We have a banner, so it's easy to find us. Um, I will say, and I think this is fair to share, that when people are beginning in the process, often the, the activism is sort of like the last piece of things because they, they're just, you know, at a place where they don't have a lot of energy. They're usually feeling bogged down by the sort of identified problem. Um, and, you know, the first thing is really, uh, I find working on the cop in the head really is important, right? Because it sort of liberates you to have more energy that you can get involved in other things, now are there are people that right away, hey, when's that rent control rally? I want to go, <laughs> right? But I would mm-hmm. say that's not that's not common, and lots of times people need a little bit of the sort of cop in the head work before they're able to um, sort of get out and sort of become, you know, an activist in the different ways that you can be act- an activist. And we don't see activism in a narrow sort of. Um, method. We see lots of different ways that you can do activism. And I, I just wanted to pick up, I really appreciate what you said about CBT, because another cool thing about liberation health is we don't see it as a standalone intervention. We see it as something you can do in, you know, conjunction with other kinds of treatment modalities. And, you know, a colleague of mine here at uh, BU is now, who teaches as an expert in CBT, is now teaching the CBT triangle along with the liberation health triangle at the same time.
0: That's really cool. Um, yeah, a colleague of mine, um, Sharla, like, I think she uses, I don't know how she would exactly describe it, but she uses a mix of like act. She uses some act therapy approaches, but also like liberation health, but also like her own kind of stuff that she wants to write up at some point because it's Mm -hmm. really interesting what she's, what she's doing. Um, one thing that I want to bring up is, for a clinician to do this work, right? There's already had to be a lot of like cop in the head work <laughs> because what you're saying, just the piece. And this is the part that I think was so like drilled into me in right. school and even like reinforced in social work and the community. Right. Cause like, you don't want to lose your job. Right. You gotta, you got have that job and then, I was faculty and it was again reinforced is this like very like separated yeah. um which if I want to name like the dominant cultural ideology it's white middle class or white upper middle class approaches um hetero uh approaches of that like we can just be separate from clients right mm-hmm. and not and then it would be actually some dual relationship right, right, middle, right. right to go to do like community work together, which to me is like, it's really problematic, right? To like that, that's what's being mostly trained. So how do you address that part as you're training people and like, teaching students about this? And I'm just kind of wondering the response you get around that type of stuff.
1: Yeah, that's probably the most common pushback we get. I mean, not so much anymore, just because I think the world is so desperate. <laughs> People are a little bit more open minded. But certainly when we began giving presentations, especially in hospitals, it would often be more traditional mental health providers, um, psychiatrists, psychologists and, and social workers, too, quite frankly, that would say, you're not supposed to, you know, kind of talk about these sort of things. You're not supposed to you know, bring up capitalism in the session for the um, young man that has a, um, an impulse control problem, right? And um, what's interesting about that is that, of course, we're always bringing up things that we think are important and the clients may not have thought about it. That happens all the time. Right. It just, when you start doing it with politics, <laughs> it's counter hegemonic, as Gramsci would say. And so then you get, why are you doing this? But lots of times people would ask about um I don't know, people's spiritual practices or um, they would ask about, I mean, when I worked in the hospital, providers were constantly bringing up medication all the time before a client had even thought about something like that. And they were like, why are you asking me about medication? So we're what I would sort of say is that we're always bringing up sort of things that we think are important and that this isn't any different than that. This is just bringing up something that's not, kind of hegemonic in the current, you know, mental health mainstream. When I was trained, you know, I was trained very psychodynamically. I was taught you're never supposed to really say anything about yourself. You're just supposed to sort of, oh, you know, <laughs> just, right. you know, kind of validate and reflect back. And, um, and, uh, you know, even if someone asked you a question, you're supposed to sort of like ask them why they asked you it, you know? And that I think is, is one way to do the work, right? And it reflects a particular set of beliefs and values and norms. And those are dominant, right? They're, they're currently dominant. But what I would say is that the sort of asking questions like the work of Ignacio Martín baro right? And Paulo Freire and um, Bertha Cape and Reynolds. It's becoming an opening right now to sort of say that this is not Forbidden. This is not wrong. It's important to ask about racism to this young kid that has the anger management problem, right? Because right. that's a factor. That's just as much of a factor about why he might be clocking people as, um, you know, what happened in his home. Or I would go further and say what happened in his home is related to legacies of racism, classism, so on and so forth, right, you know, so, like, people are made by society, people are created by these dominant worldviews, and unless you're addressing them, you're missing, in my mind, two-thirds of the picture, so we try to communicate that in our classes here at, uh, you know, with my colleagues, Um, but it's, you know, it hasn't been easy, and I, you know, I was asked to leave a job, you know, so so for doing that, so uh, it's, I do think it's getting a little bit easier, just because the changing—you know—how so much the world, right, is is changing, and that you know people are starting to question taken for granted assumptions that they've had about mental health and what constitutes good mental health um, for right now.
0: Yeah, I think like historically, right, um, there's always been people within communities doing healing work Mm -hmm. and political organizing together. I mean, it goes way back. Right. And so, you know, more um, contemporary, which isn't like so contemporary anymore, but like, you know, I I always think about the black Panther party and the young Lords and like, I mean, right. right. And like, they got like um, alternative medicine in like hospitals in New York that's right. And the and the Panthers were doing sickle cell testing in along with policing the police, right? And thing and community self-defense and free breakfast and all this. So it's really only been this like kind of top-down, like really a, a white European mm-hmm. approach to mental health that and and social work that's like been imposed really Absolutely. as this is the way to do it when all These other, like, I don't want to say all people of color because that's not accurate, but like a lot of communities of color, black folks, indigenous folks, you know, um, brown folk, Latinx, you know, have have always been doing this. Yeah, you know,
1: there's concealed stories among many different groups of people and over a long period of time of of this kind of work being done. And even within social work, right? I mean, Bertha Caper Reynolds started out as an analyst and then she got involved in, um, you know, trying to change systems and challenging, uh, you know, oppressive capitalist policies. And then she was fired from Smith for doing that, right? (laughs) So, so, um, and now, of course, you know, they have a scholarship to her name, but, you know, like there've always been people in many different, um, areas that have been doing this work, and part of um, I think the a really key component of the work is rescuing the historical memory of change. Right? How do we let people know this is not new? You know, as you said, the Panthers are not new, uh, the Young Lords are not new, the work of Paulo Freire is not new. And like, how do we take those stories that have been hidden, you know, and kind of like concealed? and sort of bring them to light so that people can feel inspiration and hope. And when thinking about what healing really looks like
0: a hundred percent, a hundred percent. So when you've used this with folks, right? Like I know you're kind of giving like a maybe hypothetical story of the father and the <laughs> daughter, right? Which I'm sure that story have that type of scenario happens all the time. Um, you know, especially I think back to that inpatient unit you were talking about. It was like, what is what does some of this look like? You know, with, um, you know, like if you could just share more, like about what some of this kind of ends up looking like.
1: Yeah. So I was thinking about what case to share, and I think I'll share a case that we've written about just because we had the permission to to do that. But this was um, someone that was. I mean, this was a long time ago, so I think I probably do things very differently. But even then, um, was hospitalized on our. Inpatient psychiatry unit for um, self harm behavior, like a lot of self harm behavior, and uh, engaged in um, what different unusual ways to seek help, right? And so, you know, when the person was admitted to our hospital and, and had this history of like 13 or 14 other hospitalizations. Uh, you know, a lot of judgments are made, right? And people are t- talk about people in a way that, um, that you know, reflects the medical model, right? Um, Can we name some of those? Because, like, I
0: want folks who are listening, like, for example, the term "frequent flyer." Mm-hmm. That's like mm-hmm. a horrible thing to call a human being. Mm-hmm. Like, what does that mean? Someone who's what abusing the system, right? Because, like, right. like, when this person needs help, like, who wants to really be institutional. I mean, right. So I just think we, it's important for us to like name some of this stuff too. So like students who hear supervisors and professors like say some of these terms, <laughs> they're yeah. like, wait, this is really what I, cause you know, people pick up and start repeating the things that they hear.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with that. And also I just think what, using, you know, sort of, you know, uh, language, right. I sort of like thinking about the Panthers leading by example. So like, you know, using the language that we want to use is really important too, Mm -hmm. but you're right. I mean, somebody like this was called a frequent flyer and, um, a borderline personality disorder and, you know, lots of different sort of, uh, you know, uh, negative terms that, that, you know, that, you know, Think I'm not, sh- and I think that there's a, a lot of internalized depression that leads to people doing stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, we had just started putting into place our liberation health method, and the first thing uh, um, that we did uh, was to sort of talk to uh, this person and um, identify what it was that was preventing them from living you know, the life that they wanted to live. And one of the things that they said was they felt like they had um, sort of a, like a, like a lump of pain, like, you know, sort of like inside of them that was interfering in everything. And so the first intervention was to stop calling the person (laughs) by their diagnosis, right? Because, you know, in, in in a hospital, we have rounds every morning and every morning, one of the residents will say, this is a, you know, a 63-year-old Latina woman who, you know, <laughs> uh, is blah, blah, blah. But we sort of, you know, with fidelity to our model, we wanted to sort of use patient first language, right, And um, or really what the person wanted to be called. And what they said is what they were um, experiencing was this sort of, you know, ball of nerves. I think it was actually a ball of nerves that they uh, that was getting in the way of their Functioning. And so that's how the person was identified every morning in rounds. And boy, was that a switch <laughs> just from like, you know, pathologizing the person themselves, you know, to saying, this is, you know, a 17 year old um, uh, Latina woman that is uh, experiencing a wall um, of nerves that's getting in the way of her functioning. And that shift of talking about it that way, like everybody on the team talking about it that way enabled them to interface with the um, the patient very differently. And we, I use the word patient only because that's the word that was used in the hospital. Everybody's mm-hmm. a patient there. Um, it's not the word I use in my practice. So from there we did a triangle, right. And uh, there were, you know, the, the personal factors, again, very typical uh, medical model stuff, lots of conflict with the dad who um, was working in um someplace in Hong Kong and, you know, had to would, would only come back like for, for a couple of days a week and just, you know, a history of anxiety and, you know, mom, the mom, the daughter, just very typical sort of what I would say, um, personal factors. But then we got into the cultural, the ideological factors and, um, there were, they were incredible. Like, uh, talking with the dad about gender roles. And the dad had this, like I said, the dad had this job where he was in Hong Kong, um, you know, most of the week, actually for sometimes weeks at a time. And he was only home for a couple of days. And we sort of talked a lot about why he did that. He didn't really like the long commute. It was like a very long plane ride and everything, but he felt like he needed to do that to provide for his family. And then, you know, the neighborhood he lived in, you know, meant that providing for the family was like having a big house and having a car. So we discussed lots of different sort of gender role messaging around tying your value to external things and how men are encouraged to do that. So gender role messaging was huge for the dad and also for the client, because the client had really never seen herself as a typical um, uh girl, right? And this was in the time, like I said, I would do this very differently because this was a time before there was um, a lot of consciousness about um, trans issues. Um, And it was the the focus at that point was around um, sort of sexual orientation, and, um, you know, she talked about how she had a long history of, you know, sort of like not fitting like she fit in, not wanting to play with dolls, you know, this whole sort of thing. And we talked about, again, messages about, you know, what constitutes, right? You know, how can you be who you are and you know be doing all these different things and and playing with dolls might be something that's not like in your you know, on your radar screen, like, does that mean you're less than? And so, so we got into a lot of gender role messaging stuff with the, with the, um, with the client um, in particular. And, um, and also a little bit about. I have to say, um, the racism that they experienced was a factor that wasn't a big piece of the discussion. Um, it was much more about classism and individualism, and the gender roles, and heteronormativity, and things like that. So there were all these different factors, right? And then we talked about the institutions, right? And she wasn't a typical learner. Um, And uh, she, you know, the schools, of course, cater to one kind of learning, right? If you don't, if you can't sit still for six hours at a time, you're made to feel less than. And that was her experience. She felt like dumb and things like that. So, there was the schools, there was the sort of capitalist system with the dad, that was the hospital, that was the mental health treatment. So all these different factors and getting that on the triangle for her was like, I, I can, I mean, it was many years ago that we did this. I can, I can still remember her face like, Oh, <laughs> you know, this is like, this is all a bunch of, you know, bullshit. You know, like, I don't have to, this is not mean I'm less than or so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And the, um interventions, which around, which involves, again, identifying the dominant worldview message, deconstructing it, um, introducing new information, rescuing the historical memory of change and activism in, as a therapeutic intervention, um, like really transform the family in so many different ways. Like, for one, the dad decided he didn't need to keep that job in Hong Kong and he could actually do OK, you know, in a smaller house Closer to home, where he would see his daughter a little bit more, and um, the daughter uh, got sort of connected with. Um, it was uh, it wasn't a group at his her school, but it was a different school. Um, I'm trying to remember the name, it, it, like the gay. It was like a gay straight alliance, you know. And she got connected to that, and um, she uh, was then through there got connected with other people that were sort of, you know, understanding gender in a way that she did. And she left the hospital um, and she did not go back to the hospital, which was (laughs) pretty amazing because, you know, that was her history and was became very involved with this group of people. And I actually uh, saw her maybe a couple of years later. I almost didn't recognize her because she looked so different. She was wearing um, like gendered, like male clothing instead of, you know, different clothing um, and, uh, her hair was really short and she was at a, um, an animal like rights protest, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and she, the only, and the only reason I rec- she recognized me, I didn't recognize her. Um, she, I recognized her from her voice. The voice was the same. And, uh, she said, Hey, you know, like <laughs> she was excited to see me and things like that. And, um, she says, Hey, we're, we're going to the, you know, to some, you know, Building to just talk about the animals. Do you want to come? And I looked at my watch, and I had about like a half an hour. And I was like, sure. So I had never gone to an animal. That you know, it was that's just not an area I've been involved in. So I went, I picked up a sign, <laughs> kind of went along with her, and that was that was that. And that was it was just I haven't seen her since. And um, you know, I think that I can say the the work around you know deconstructing dominant worldview messages, just identifying them, and not focusing on. The trauma history, which she did have, you know, was transformational for her and and turned her into, um, uh, as Paulo Ferry would say, a subject in in her own life, protagonist.
0: It's an incredible story. And I'm sure you have just so many others, right? Um, It's really, really powerful. I hope, you know, people listening or um, reading the transcript are going to want to learn more. So I want to make sure we also, how can, you know, we, we share that and I can put links, you know, in the show notes and the website, but how can people learn more about the model and if they want to get trained in the model?
1: Yeah. Well, the easiest way to learn more about the model is to join our liberation health group. Right. And so we have a website, um, www.bostonliberationhealth.org. And we have a Facebook group and we also have a listserv. So there's if you don't do social media, you still can join. Um, and the great thing about, uh, you know, the, our current sort of historical moment is that we used to have our meetings, in, you know, in person. We still do have in, in person meetings, but we also have them remotely. And so, for example, on Friday is our we have monthly meetings. We have a meeting um, remotely and we alternate um, our meetings. We meet monthly except for July and August. We take the summer off. And every other month is a case presentation. So somebody would or a clinical situation. Someone will describe someone or a group of people that they're working with or maybe it's a systems issue. And we do a triangle together right? And then we break down into small groups and talk about liberation health interventions. So everybody is welcome to that, um, attend that meeting. And I think that's free. And so, you know, we can, you can connect with other liberation health um, practitioners. I know a really good friend of yours has come to our meetings and, you know, we've, we've really enjoyed having her and learning from her. Um, and there are people like there's 2,800 people in this group. So like, you know, don't, you don't need to be on the same time zone just need to come and click on your zoom link at the same time zone as us which is seven o'clock and then there's the book we, we wrote a book on social justice and clinical practice the liberation health framework for social work and um i'm sure there's ways to access the book that don't involve spending a lot of money um there's trainings we we go to universities we go to um, hospitals, we go to agencies and we train, we have a number of different trainings that we do in the model. And so you can get all that information as a training request form on our website. And I think there's a number of articles on our website as well, that you can just download in the PDFs are free.
0: That's awesome. So yeah, I'll put those links on there. And, um, something I wanted to talk about before, you know, we wrap up is I think sometimes when, um, people think of social work right they think of like i'm just gonna try to put this all out there because sometimes i have a hard time verbalizing this idea and and this is something like charla um yearwood who i work closely with talks about a lot but like for example this idea of like white people are like helping within like these disadvantaged communities right but this and so this model we need like liberation health because like marginalized people need a model like this right but this model is liberating for people that are in dominant positions as well like the father who also was dealing with some oppressive conditions cuz We all are (laughs) like on very, uh, you know, I'm not saying it's all the same for everybody. We know it's not Mm -hmm. like, you know, I don't get pulled over because of the color of my skin. Right. I don't uh, I don't worry about that Um, or being like killed by police for that. There's um, but like, sorry, you were going to say something.
1: Well, what I was going to say is that like we all grew up under racial capitalism and we all were exposed to those toxic ideas 24 seven, right? And totally. so your social location and identity is a factor in how, you know, you've experienced those ideas and the institutions that interface with you. But like, unless your parents like just raised you in a bubble, and you never left, right? You know, you, everybody experiences these toxic ideas, everybody has the cop in their head. And we all need help, we need each other, right? That we need a collective response to deconstruct that and develop these new stories
0: yeah and like so many of us who are working within these i mean all of these institutions have this too right and so like if you're gonna try to do something outside of that or like even if someone's like you know like my job's so frustrating whatever whatever it's like well maybe look at like why it's frustrating it's probably tied to like some of the like it's i'd be willing to put money (laughs) on like that it's connected yes. to some, and I don't gamble, but I've been, I'd be willing to put money that it's connected to some of this, or the person who's driving you crazy is heavily influenced. Um, and so, like, Sharla and I often talk about, um, you know, re- like f- liberation from whiteness is healthy for white people, and, Absolutely. I, and I, yeah, and I think that your this model, it like I want folks who are listening, especially white students or, you know, who will be clinicians or just whatever they're doing um, or folks, you know, practic- current practitioners, like how to use this with white people, you know, or, or people that you think are already in like these dominant positions that don't maybe want to talk about some of this stuff. Yeah. I mean, so
1: that guy that I just told you about that, that family case, was a white man. (laughs) He had internalized, you know, what it meant to be a successful white man. And it meant, you know, producing for the market at all costs, even at the cost of losing your family. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we, as you said, all of us have internalized these toxic messages, and we need each other to identify them, to deconstruct them to remember alternative stories. Like, you know, I love the work of so many uh, radical activists that talk about, you know, the the White Panthers and the, you know, and um, the I'm trying to remember the other group. There's there's tons of radical white groups that have been doing amazing work for a really long time. Joe Hill, right? You know, just um, we forget, right? And then I think sometimes students feel like it's not my place, right? Or like I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm a, I mean, I I'm not being affected by the oppression in the same way. Uh, and so it's not my place and and I feel very strongly that a the people that are the most directly affected need to lead. That's true, right? Because you know they're going to have the wisdom and the direct, mm-hmm. you know, experiences. And our job is not one of charity, it's solidarity. We are affected by these institutions as well and we can't be free, right? Until they're gone.
0: Yeah. I love that. And, and like, I also think when you have a model, right. Cause yours is a model. So you can say to, cause I think what I hear from a lot of white clinicians, especially is like, I don't know how to talk about this with white clients. Mm. And it's like, but if you say, Hey, I use this model and these are the components of the model. So we're going to go through all of them. And this is the model I use. We do this with everybody. Right. Boom. That's like, right. <laughs> it's like. Now, you know how to talk about it, you know, and bec- because you're not like, oh, I'm only bringing this up to you because you're white and like, you- I already think you're racist or something. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. I mean, it would be sort of really interesting to have like another uh, um there. So we have a steering committee at Liberation Health and, and there were three white people on the steering committee and they would be really it'd be great to have them sort of talk about their experiences using this model and how comfortable they are and how you know, share stories about how people have been transformed as a result of this work.
0: Yeah. We'll do a follow up. Um, <laughs> so I think, yeah, I think doing more. And like I said, I think Liberation Health could be its own podcast, like period and have like so many episodes, but maybe that's a project we'll talk about um, <laughs> to work on later. I want to just cover like one more thing this is i always do this and then the episode keeps going but one of the core aspects to me that it seems is necessary to be able to practice this model is to have an understanding of like these political like these political factors yes and so much of, of education period and especially social work education even though there's those policy courses does not cover this so how do you do that with folks?
1: Yeah. So that is a great example of how this ideology of white supremacy and class and race and, you know, economics has infected our entire school system, right? So lots of times people come into social work school and they're shocked to learn, you know, the stuff that they learned growing up is just, not true, right? And there's that great, I mean, I don't know if you remember, but there was a there was a group, Simon and Garfunkel, that was, you know, from a long time ago. <laughs> no, I know okay. who they are. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, they, I didn't know. But they have this line, if I think back on all the crap I learned in high school, it's a wonder I can think at all. Mm. And I think that, like, that, you know, is really, that's true. And it's nobody's fault.
0: They were onto something with that line. Right? I
1: mean, so sometimes people get into this state where like they feel really guilty and like, Oh my God, I didn't know this. And I feel so bad. And, you know, the guilt sort of just kind of like immobilizes them. And what we say to people is like, of course you didn't know this. It's very intentional that you didn't know this. You'd have, it have to be an extraordinary situation for you to know what was really going on because they keep it from you. And so for us at the school social work, it's really important to be able to present right. This alternative, um, New information, right? And it's not new per se, but it's often new to new people. So, for example, we have um, a module that we did, a three hour module on structural institutional racism. Every new professor at the school of social work has to take that module. They have to do it. It's an online three hour module. It's free. Anybody can access it anywhere in the world. You know, just go to our, you know, I can send you the link to it. And that those kinds of things are necessary in order to do this kind of work because you need to know about these alternative stories. You need to know what you were told, you know, why you were told it, who it benefited, and you know, these concealed stories of um change, liberation, and um transformation.
0: Yeah. In the work that Charla and I do, we often hear like, I never learned any of this. Like, why didn't I learn? You know, and we have those conversations. And some of our courses are also like, like one of them is called racism has always existed in the United States. Right. And it's this historical perspective. um, That's
1: right. The United States has never been without it. That's absolutely true.
0: Exactly. Like it would never exist. Right. And um, without it. Right. That's right. And, and I did an interview with um, Dr. Dedrick Williams. He's at um, University of Tennessee, Knoxville. And that was, he he talked about how race would not exist without racism. They cannot be separated. Mm-hmm. That's right. And that also is like something people really need to understand to be able to f- do this work. I mean, for a lot of reasons, but especially to be able to do this work.
1: Yeah. I mean, did you ever see, I'm going to make a, so my interest in the arts, but did The Matrix, did you ever see The Matrix and you remember when Morpheus has those two pills? Like, you can take the red pill, or the blue pill. Like, that's kind of what it's like. You take this red pill, or I remember the color, and you, you're going to go down a rabbit hole that's like, <laughs> you're like, whoa. Yeah, there's right? no
0: coming back. Like, right? once you start seeing it through that new lens, you're going to start seeing everything through that lens, which is why they're the powers that be are fighting people learning all right. of this because right. they don't want people to see it through that lens. Yep. Um, I want to thank you so much for your time, for coming on here, and thank you so much for everything you do, um, for bringing us the liberation health model to the world, to the podcast, to the folks listening, reading, following along, and thanks for doing the work.
1: Um, well, thank you for doing the work because you're part of uh, the multiracial working class movement for our collective liberation. So thank you, comrade.
0: Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place.